side and you look at our eight core values that we launched about a year ago, the first one you'll see is that we anticipate the movement of God. So we don't ever want to be a church that is in this just going through the motions and checking the boxes or, or that we're celebrating a God of the past or a God who's going to do something again in the future, but we serve a God who is in the now, that what God has done are things God will continue to do, and we anticipate the movement of God in our lives and in the life of this church, and it's often through sabbatical that ministers are reminded that what we do is not based on our giftedness and we're not in the business of entertaining people and trying to keep plates spinning, but we are in this to encounter God on our own so that we can help other people encounter God too. So even this morning, we're anticipating what God is going to do among us. I grew up going to church camp outside of San Antonio, Camp Bandina. It's in the middle of nowhere, so we would wake up early on a Sunday morning. We would get in a couple of different buses, and we would drive down to Bandina, uh, Bandera, Medina. It's outside of San Antonio. We would pull up, and there's this river. And if it had rained a lot, we would have to slowly work our way through a few inches of water to get to the camp. And a couple of years ago, I was speaking at an event, a, a nonprofit down close to Austin, and I knew I was going to be driving within 15 miles of this camp. And I hadn't been there in over 20 years, so I decided to go out of my way and to go and just reminisce for a few moments. So I pulled up, and it just happened. It had rained a lot, so there was no way for me to get across the river, so I couldn't get into the camp. So I just had to stay there by the river, and I got out of my car, turned the car off, and I stood there because there in the river is where we would swim every day, girl time, then guy time, and then that's where we would baptize people. And I started thinking about all these memories that came from that church camp. It seemed like every summer there were camp flings that would happen because we went to church camp with a number of other churches. And every summer there would be people who would leave a church camp thinking that they were going to get married one day. And I can remember a couple of my camp flings. But this is back in the day, like, I don't want to act like I'm super old, but maybe I am. Like, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have email. So to keep a relationship going was long distance. It cost a lot of money. So most of these camp flings would last for about a month. And then the long distance phone bill would come in or we would get tired of having to go buy calling cards that we would have to go buy or writing letters and buying stamps. So they wouldn't last very long. But as I stood there by the river, I started remembering and recounting uh, some of the first people I baptized were there in that river uh, later on in high school. And I, I can remember pulling down to the river and having to honk the horn and hit the water so water moccasins could go swimming away so that we could step in and baptize people, which made me rethink my whole theology of baptism. Like, this immersion really need to happen if snakes are involved, right? And and then people, who, who kids who were ready to take a plunge, and they didn't care if there were snakes or not. They had encountered God, and they, they wanted Jesus in their lives. And, and I remember how the grace of God found me in that camp. The call of God on me for ministry did not happen at church camp, but it was confirmed and affirmed in that church camp. And I stood there thinking about all these memories. And I was, as I was standing there rethinking and looking at the river and being reminded of baptisms and relational connections that took place, another car pulled up. Now, what was so ironic is my last 10 miles into this camp, I don't think I passed anybody. It's in the middle of nowhere, a little two-lane uh, two highway to get there. And another car pulled up. And these older folks stepped out of this SUV and they said, Josh Ross, is that you? In which my response, anytime that happens in public places, is it depends. Like, well, it depends. If it was me, what would you say? 
And if it wasn't me, what would you say? Like, I want to know. Like, it depends. And they said, man, we were your camp volunteers years ago at church camp. They were doing the same thing. They lived in another state. They had come to visit Austin and San Antonio area. They wanted to go and reminisce. So they pull up at the same time I'm there. Now, I have to admit, my first thought was, how are you still alive? Because I thought you were old back then. I mean, they were like in their 50s. These people were ancient. Like, how are you still living and walking this earth? That was my first thought. But then we had these connections and reminiscing. I mean, how ironic it was that two people who hadn't seen each other in 20 years would end up there standing in a little driveway, trying to, can't get past the river, thinking about all these memories. Memory is a gift from God. It's through memory that we are reminded of stories, that we remember the past. Memory is a precious gift. And this is why, for those of you who've had loved ones who have lost their memory, it's why it's so hard. Because memory is how we keep families connected and communities connected. And it's how we tell stories and we keep them alive. So the next few weeks, we're going to be in a sermon series called Storylines. How we look toward the past, toward the past, how we look at the past, and how we keep moving with God into the future. And I want to talk a little bit more about that here in just a moment. But if you have your Bibles today, will you open the Genesis chapter 11? And I want to begin with Abram, who would soon, his name would become Abraham. But before God changed his name, his name was Abram. And here's how his story begins. In Genesis chapter 11, in verse 27, it says this. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Now, while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. It would soon be changed to Sarah, but it was Sarai. And in verse 30, it says, now Sarai was childless because she was uh, unable to conceive. All right, so the first you hear about Abram, at the very end of chapter 11 and then in chapter 12, we don't know what happens in Abram, Abraham's life the first 75 years of his life. And right there on the screen, chapter 11, verse 27 through 30, if you're at home, if you can see this on the screen, right there, what does this tell you about Abram? Like, you know, very few details about this guy other than he has a father. You don't know who his mother was. He has a father. He had two brothers. One died. At some, at some point in his life, he had another brother who died. And you know he's married, and you know his wife can't have babies, which especially in those days wasn't a good thing. You know hardly anything else about this guy. Like, what if people didn't know anything about you until you were 75 years old? Would you like that or not? And here's Abram, 75 years old, later on in life. And this is, these are the details we know about him. Now, maybe you've skipped over it before, but we're told that he spent quite a bit of time in Ur of the Chaldeans. Which you may know very little about this place, but what you need to know in history, and ancient history tells us about Ur of the Chaldeans. This was a place of civilization. It was an urban community. Highly educated people lived there. It was a place of luxury. It was prosperous. They had great access to food and to water. So when you think Ur of the Chaldeans, I want you to think luxury. And I think this is important for you to understand Abram's life, that he didn't go from some hut to moving through a wilderness because God told him to, he began in a huge city where he was probably educated about a lot of things in life, where, there was, where he was prosperous, where there was privilege. And we know that he moved throughout the rest of his life with a lot of wealth that didn't just accrue later in life. He was probably born into it as a part of who he was. And then chapter 12, what you get is the call of God on his life. In verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went. So he didn't go from some hut to a wilderness. But God's voice, God's call comes on his life. And there's a call and response. Up until this point, you don't know anything about Abram's relationship with God, you don't know how long he's been a believer in God or what his faith has been like or what his prayer life is like. At the age of 75, the call of God, a command of God comes upon him. And all you can expect and assume is that Abram had enough respect for God or knowledge of God that when the command came, he obeyed. There was obedience in his life. There was a call and there was a response. God said, here's what I want you to do, and he went. And he went not knowing what the destination was. And this is what Paul, later on in the Bible, what he admires so much about Abraham is that this was a guy who, not even knowing exactly where it is God wanted him to go or exactly what the future was going to look like, that he obeyed anyway. Like, he just went with it. And some of you are waiting to know what your future is going to be like. And there's a lot of uncertainty of, for you moving into the future. And you need to learn from Abraham today that sometimes when you were called by God, the call it may not be to a specific destination. Sometimes God is just asking you to, we need to move. Don't just passively wait. As you're waiting on God and you're waiting on your future, like we are called to actively wait on God to where we are moving and there's obedience and there's faithfulness in our lives as we are waiting on some of the future to be un un unveiled for us so that we know what we're living into. But right now, be faithful, be obedient. And then you get this in verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abraham as he was on his way. The Lord appeared. And God said to your offspring, I will give this land. God's reminding Abram of the promise he gave him. And it says this, so Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. He built an altar. And this is why I wanted to jump into this series called Storylines. As we look into the past and move into the future with God. Altars are built throughout the entire Bible. When people had an experience with God, they built an altar. And even today there are ancient altars that they're still finding as they're uh, searching land like, altars are all over the place. And let me just show you a few. It would have looked something like this. Like, they would build this stone altar. And this was a place where uh, they would sacrifice animals. So, um, not to sound too gory, I know sacrificial, the sacrificial system isn't something we're, that is a part of who we are today. But there had to be a way for blood to run off of the altar. Some altars were built and they would place grain on them. And they would offer that up to God. And you'll see stones like this that they had to put together for, as, as these altars. And then if you go to the next image, some of them were much larger. They were platforms with steps that would go up to them. So it wasn't just an individual moving up to an altar. There were altars that were for a whole community to be able to walk up to a platform as they were offering up either animal sacrifices or grain sacrifices. And, but that's not the only reason altars were built. If you were to see those altars I just placed on the screen, how long do you think it took just to build an altar? Like to move the stones, to set them up. Like this is more than 10 or 15 minutes. This took time. This took sacrifice. So killing the altar, animal sacrifices, grain sacrifices, this would have taken a long time. To actually kill an animal, cut it up, have an animal on the sacrifice. You couldn't eat an animal rare. It had to be well done. I mean, sacrifices took a lot of time. Creating altars took a lot of time. And altars weren't just set in place for the sacrifice to go on it. 
Altars also stood for a testimony. It became a sanctuary. It was to remember an experience. They were memorializing events. So for Abram, there was this encounter with God, so we built an altar because of it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Saul, King Saul, Samuel, Joshua, they're altars that are built all throughout the Old Testament as a way to offer sacrifices, but also because there were stories to tell. So Abram kept on his way. And kept moving on his way. And in verse 8 it says, For there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, there he built an altar. Another altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And here you don't know content of the prayer. You're just told there was space for it. Which drives me nuts sometimes about scripture. Because I know we have written prayers. We have the Psalms. But then there are the, a lot of other times where Abraham or David or you have Jesus who they go. And all you're told is they spend a lot of time praying to God. And you don't know content. Because sometimes in the Bible I think what they want you to know is content isn't the most important thing about prayer. It's connection and communion with God. It's committing to a space. And sometimes for us prayer time is all about content. And if there's no content you won't commit to space. When sometimes prayer is you committing to a space and communion with God. Whether content is there or not. And all you're told is Abraham he builds an altar and he invokes. He calls upon the name of God. You don't know what the prayer time was like but he built an altar there. Now, the next story is a crazy one because uh, Abraham, he's fearful of his life, and he comes up with this lie that he wants his, his wife, Sarah, to act like she's a sister, and this thing goes crazy in Egypt, right? But then you have this moment in chapter 13, in verse 2 and 4, where it says, 3 and 4, where it says this, from the Negev, and this is, and this is Abraham, who's still on his journey, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent, where his altar had been earlier, and where he had first First built an altar to God, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Abraham went back to the place where a blessing of God had come before. This time, not because there was an experience to memorialize, but to remember a moment he had with God in the past. This is why I went back to Camp Bandina, to stand by that river. And to remember stories of the past. This is why some of you, when you drive through towns where you grew up, that you'll go, how many of you have ever had parents or grandparents who took you back to the town where they raised and they took you everywhere and had a story about everything? You know what I'm saying? And you could probably care less about some of those places. When we drive back through Mesquite, I get off Interstate 30 I want to take my kids by 10, 12 field trail where I spent all of middle school and high school. I take them by my high school. And then I get mad because they aren't as excited about this as I am. Like, why do you not want to hear stories in the places that formed your dad? And right there, that's where a bird pooped on my head. Like, this is where your dad did things. Why are you not excited about this? And they're looking at Casey like, can you get us out of this, right? This is why we go back to places and why we retell stories. And this is why, what memory does for us. Memory and remembering. Why do we remember the things that we don't need to remember? And we forget the things we know we need to remember? Frances Jensen, a neuroscientist, she says this. Scientists have shown that the best way to remember what you've learned is to return to the place where you learned it. Now, she's not writing from a faith perspective. She's writing about adolescence. She wrote a book called The Teenage Brain. 
And she was proving a point on how for teenagers, it's often going back to the place of encounters or education that can help trigger things that you have learned in the past. So when she writes about this in one chapter, she's talking about for some students, what's good is for them to actually sit at a desk in a classroom and things they've been taught in the past can't come back to them. Now, this became really real to Casey and me during virtual school. Because Casey and I were having to, well, I say Casey and I. I mean, it wasn't really 50-50 with our kids in virtual school. It was like 98 to 2, but I played my part, all right? Uh, But our kids, I mean, they, they were struggling with virtual school because they were pulling up their tablet while they're in bed under the covers and while they're laying on the ground and... And when we finally sat them down at a desk in our house, they were able to learn better. There's something about going back to the places where we've learned things before. Rich Velotis, in his book about craving the heart of God, called The Deeply Formed Life, he says this, In the Bible, one of the most repeated words is remember. God had to consistently remind his people where they came from, lest they repeat the sins of their past. So I went to San Francisco my freshman year of college. And one day we went out to Muir Woods, all the redwoods, it's a redwood forest. And the leader of our group said, what we're going to do is we're going to take an hour of solo time, just an hour to be with God. And I found a running stream that went through all these redwoods where I sat for an hour. And it was there that I sensed the presence of God speaking and confirming things in my heart about my future. And I'm, it's rare that I journal. I've never been a good journaling. I love the idea of it. I've just never been good at it. But it was there that I wrote a couple of pages in a journal of what I was hearing of God and from God about my future. And years later, Casey and I went out to the Bay Area on a vacation, and we went back to Redwood, this Redwood Forest, and I took Casey to this place where I had this encounter with God, and we sat down by this running stream. And I mean, she kind of had to vicariously experience with me because this wasn't a moment that had formed or shaped her, but it was a pivotal moment that had formed and shaped me. And we sat there for a little while just reminiscing about this place. And all of you have these moments in your life, whether it's Encounters with God or where relationships were formed. When you walk into a CC's pizza, some of you think cheap buffets. Some of you think you better have Pepsi or Pepto somewhere close to you. For me, when I walk into a CC's, I think evangelism and where I've seen people come to know the Lord. I mean, this is where I worked toward the end of high school and the owner and the managers were powerful evangelists. I've seen over 100 people come to Jesus through the CC's pizza where I work. And those are the memories that come to mind when I'm there. How many of you grew up with parents or grandparents at every historical marker they passed on a highway, they had to stop to read it? Anybody? Where historical markers are there because they're telling an event. Anytime I'm down, I'm driving down a road or down an interstate and you see a cross set up with teddy bears or flowers around it, I don't know the person, but I'm remembering, okay, that probably was a moment that brought a lot of grief and suffering to a number of people. And we memorialize places like that. I go to a cemetery once a year to stand by my sister's grave knowing that she's no longer in there, but remembering and being reminded of stories and declaring the future of God over moments like that. This is why we memorialize things, because it calls us to remember events and stories from the past. And as people of God, to be reminded that, that, that that's not just where our stories end, that we move forward as people of hope. Right? We move forward with God. 
Now, one of the craziest things about memory is there are, I know there are moments in your life of abuse and loneliness. And, and how are we supposed to remember the, things like that? Because as much as I wish, for those of you who remember the movie Men in Black, that God would just raise up that flashy thing and click it. And those things in your past you don't need to remember, like they would just be gone. We know life doesn't work that way. And even in the book of Isaiah, there seems to be a good conversation that's happening and, and not, not so much uh, the, the Bible contradicting itself, but, but if you'll put this on the screen, in Isaiah chapter 49, and again in Isaiah chapter 65, you have these two different statements, and you can go and read them in their fuller context, but these are, but these are two statements that show up quite a bit in the Bible, where you have one statement from Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things, those of long ago, and then a few chapters later, Isaiah says the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, so which one is it? So as people of God, do we remember things in the past or do we not remember things in the past? And I think what the Bible is trying to teach people, and I think what I want to help do over the next few weeks is that there are a lot of things that have happened in our past and in the world. And it's not just that we tell the stories, it's how we tell the stories. It's not just that we remember things, it's how we remember them. Isn't this what is so important for you? Because I'm sure this place today, I mean, those of you in person, online, there are so many moments that you, you deeply regret things in your past. And this, this is the battle you're going to face for the rest of your life. Like, how do, we, how do we not let the past have a stronghold in our lives and keep it in its rightful place and remember things the way God wants us to remember them? This is a struggle we'll have in your own life as you think back on things you deeply regret. And it's a struggle we're going to have as we try to process events and moments in history. Just in the last two weeks of our lives, from this day right now, we've had Memorial Day, which is a day that we remember sacrifices that people in our country have made. In the last two weeks, you've probably seen, I mean, the story of the Tulsa Massacre, which was a story many of you weren't taught or, or told growing up. But it was the same day as Memorial Day this year, where hundreds of black people in Tulsa 100 years ago lost their lives. I mean, we're mad. it was this huge riot that just went wrong. And then you have George Floyd, something that happened a year ago. But all this, like, it's not just that we remember, but how we remember. I think this is so important as we process even cultural events. And, and you've probably been caught up or you've heard stories recently about what do we do with the racial tension in our past? And there are those who have a concern that the way stories are told about our past is going to generate hate in our children of our country moving forward. And I get that concern. And I also get the concern that people don't want racial tension just to become a footnote in a history book or a, or a paragraph or even a chapter. It's not just that we tell stories. It's how do we tell them. This is so true even about statues and what we do with them. If I was a black person in Memphis, I wouldn't want to see Nathan Bedford Forrest every time I drove down Union Avenue and be reminded of the thousands of lives that were ripped apart and people who were sold and scattered all over the place. But removing statues doesn't just remove history, right? I mean, I don't get anybody who wants to keep statues like that up because they want to celebrate everything that person stood for. Yet I also hear people, even people of color, who aren't in favor of removing the statues because stories of oppressors still need to be told. 
They're still a part of history, so it's not just that we remember stories. It's how we remember them. This is true in our world. It's true globally. It's true locally. It's true in your life as you process who you are as a person of God. And what I don't want, and I think you would agree this, what you don't want is for our church or for any local church, for people to come in feeling like they have to put on imaginary turtlenecks and long sleeve shirts just to hide their stories and their wounds and their scars. Because churches are made up of people with names, but it's got to be more than that. It's people with stories and narratives that need to be told and space needs to be given for those stories to be told and, and to be shared. And for some of you listening today, you're struggling to put your past in its rightful place. The Bible calls Satan the, the father of lies. And as much as Satan wants to lodge lies deep in your heart about who you are, it all begins in the mind. It begins with how you remember. And Satan wants to tell you that the events of your past and things you have done will hover over you for the rest of your life and they have a stronghold on you. But God says other things about you. And for some of you today, just hear the truth of God as we think about our past and we ask God to move us into the future. That God's truth is greater than Satan's lies. That God's grace doesn't just reach into your heart now. God's grace is strong enough to reach into your past. That greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That we serve a God who tends to wounds and to scars. That God knows the mind and renews the mind. So may we be people who go forward this week remembering in healthy ways, remembering in ways God wants us to remember. So I want to go ahead and invite Kip and the praise team if you'll go ahead and come up. We're going to sing a song, and here's what I want you to do. And we're going to sing this song, and then we're going to come to the table. And hopefully, if you're here in person, you have the bread and the cup in your hand. If not, you can go out those doors, and you can get it as we sing this song. And here's what I want to invite you to do as we sing this song, too. Here in just a moment, we're going to pray over a lot of our teenagers our middle school, high school students who are involved in some mission efforts. Most of our mission, I guess all of our mission efforts are local this year. And we have three tables set up by the back wall. And as we sing this song, if you're comfortable getting up and moving, because we're all going to kind of be moving the tables, but will you go and take one of those carts? Because we're going to bring that to the, to the table with us today, the bread and the cup. We're going to bring those cards and those prayers with us. And we're going to pray over those here in just a few moments. As we sing this song, I want to invite you to move to the tables and get a card to pray over to. Let's sing together. Let's stand as we sing. Let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich. Let the blind say I can see. It's what the Lord has done in me. Into the river I will wade. And there my sins are washed away from the mercy streams of the Savior's love for me. Hosanna, Hosanna to the Lamb that was slain. 
invite you in person if you're virtually just join us in this moment to hold the bread and the cup in one hand and to hold the card and if you don't have a card maybe just hold a hand open there is not a moment in a worship service on Sundays that brings together the past the present and the future more than this moment when we take the bread and the cup that there was an event that happened around 2,000 years ago where Jesus died on a cross came back to life and has now given life to all of God's people. The resurrection is true. It's the best story. It reframes every story for us. This is a story that points us back to the past, that helps us to live for God in the future and that gives us, in the present and gives us future hope. And it's a story that we're asking to guide all of these teenagers and that God would use this story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to propel these mission efforts to form and shape people in the kingdom, I mean, kingdom-hearted boys and girls who will serve our God all over this world one day in some way. So I want to ask you into a moment of silence, and then Fawn, if you'll come and finish this prayer for us here after a few moments of silence. And I want to invite us in this time to take the bread and the cup, to remember all, remember all God has done for you, and we're asking God to use this to launch our teenagers into mission efforts throughout this summer. So let's bow, and then Fawn will come and uh, pray for us.